gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the Stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, we're sending our best wishes to our friend Jeff Maldron, who we hope is back very soon hosting this Studcast. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the stud cast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. How are you doing today, my man? Uh, good to be with you, Dave. And great introduction. Gosh, man, you make me sound much better than I am, probably, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, but uh, yeah, we've got a good program today. we got a good one, kind of like we've been we've been kicking it here, it seems like, for the last three or four weeks. And, you know, we're in a real good time frame here in 1976 when things are really cooking for Southeastern, starting to, anyway. This one is going to talk about one thing in particular that's going to kind of set the pace for what's going to happen later on with Southeastern. And so, uh, yeah, we've got a good one again today. All right. We're going to cinch him up and let's hit the trail. What do you think? Well, I'm going to begin today with the highlights of the Southeastern Wrestling TV of Saturday, May 22nd, uh, 1976. That's the time frame we're in. And uh, that TV obviously was promoting the following Friday night, which was going to be in Chilhowee Park Amphitheater again. That was going to be May 28th, 1976. So we're going to look at that 1976, May 28th card in depth. Then we're going to talk about the results of those matches. And then we're going to update some several southeastern cities that we haven't talked about in a while now, little smaller cities. And then we're going to talk about a billboard campaign that I kick off in the summer of 1976 and my ideas and my thinking on this billboard project. And then we're going to tell another, well, a couple of Australian stories today and uh, in honor of Jim Barnett's uh, Super Stud Cast for this month. And uh, we're going back to Australia because that's where he had such great history. And uh, I had spent some time there with him in 1973. And I'm going to just talk about a little bit of what it was like to, to live in that country and uh, especially live along the coastline. Then we're going to talk about my experience uh, when, when Australia couple of shark stories, you know, people seem to like shark stories everywhere. Uh, these are Jaws stories, that's for sure. Not quite like Jaws, but the, but they have the potential to be. 
Wow. And uh, we're going to finish up today with the next learning tree question. And uh, that question is, uh, who is in charge when it comes to the style of wrestling that fans get in the territory? The fans or the promoters? Uh, pretty interesting question. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so we're just going to roll. My horse is all saddled up. And uh, let's get old lightning going. And uh, we're going to go back to May 22nd, 1976. We're going to talk about first the television program because it's a really good one. Uh, it contained a great video of the first ever night in Southeastern history that Don Carson wrestled as a babyface. And he wrestled in a match against General Homer Odell. Two heels the week before are going to end up wrestling in the main event against each other. I uh, also defended my Southeastern Championship on this TV show we're going to talk about. And I defended it against Norvell Austin. And one of the reasons was it was, it's rating month. Every May, in, in the year, in November, in February, in May, and in July, those were four months of rating periods for television. Right. And May is the rating period in 1976, and I'm going to wrestle for and defend the Southeastern Championship on television. And part of it is due to that being the May of 76. Let's return briefly to the Friday night, not the one we're going to talk about in, of May 28th, but May 21st, the one that was leading up the day before this TV that we're about to talk about. And the video is from one of the matches that took place on that night, May 21st. And uh, Les went in the studio early, as he did on a lot of occasions. We were shooting a lot of video back in those days, and he spent a lot of time editing that morning early. They cut it down a 25-minute segment to a total of about eight minutes, but that's kind of a, a miracle of video at this point. Uh, you know, most people are still shooting film, and uh, the miracle of video is how much more quickly you could edit a video than you could a piece of film, and you could quickly turn a story and a match into a fascinating match, you know, by editing it. So uh, we were in the first wrestling we're the first company in the world to shoot on video rather than film. Wrestling company, that is. And it, we could record, we could edit, and we could air the product within an unbelievable 15 hours. And that's what we did in this case. Uh, we record that night, and the following morning, by 10 o'clock, he's in the studio working on uh, editing it. And by 2 o'clock, it's airing. This match that we're talking about, uh, the one with Homer against. Carson, you know, it starts out with Homer and his men coming to ringside, the beginning of the match. And now we've edited down from 25 minutes to eight minutes. So we started with Homer and his guys arriving at the ring. Homer is told that his guys can't stay at the ring. He refuses to leave. Les Thatcher has to come down to ringside and makes an announcement regarding the Southeastern officials. And, and he basically says to Homer, if you don't send your men back to the dressing room immediately, I've been informed by Southeastern officials that you don't have a place to work here anymore. You're uh, banished from Southeast. Right. They couldn't put it much more bluntly than that. Well, obviously, the crowd loved that. They just exploded like, wow, let get him out of here. You know, so let's continue on. He, and he added, uh, and by the way, after they leave here, Homer, if they come back before the match is over and get involved, you're banished then, too. So, you know, a crowd popped again. They they loved the fact that uh, Homer's getting his, basically. He's finally got himself in a bad position. So the actual match is about 15 minutes between Homer and Carson. Pretty long, considering that Homer's running 
10 minutes or 12 minutes of it. And it's the first time that Homer bled in Southeastern wrestling. Carson won the match in the middle of the ring. And uh, since that lesson made that announcement that Tanaka and them better not come back till it was over, as soon as that bell rang, well, obviously here came Tanaka and uh, Austin, and they trapped Carson in the ring before he could get out of there. Tanaka jumped on him, uh, and uh, obviously Norvell held him. Homer did a little stomping once they got him down, but uh, Tanaka busted him open with one of those big chops, and it wasn't long before the three of them were doing a job on him like they had the week before. And Carson was a bloody mess at the end of this. I mean, uh, Homer was bleeding when the match was going on, but uh, now three of them are working on Carson, and he's bleeding. So then the video continued to run as uh, Ron Wright came in to help Carson and a new team was formed, basically, to contend with Homer and his men. A very unusual team, an unusual combination, considering what had happened between Ron Wright and Don Carson since Carson got there. So Carson ends up on the first segment of the television watching this tape. Because this is such an important match, I wanted to get it in early in the show. I want people to realize what went on between Carson and Homer. And uh, so Carson's there, and he watches it and talks over the match. When the match ends and uh, the part where Tanaka and Austin hit the ring, Carson stops the video. He asks Les to stop the video. And Carson's pretty good, man. I'll tell you, great talker. He made a passionate speech about how many mistakes he'd made since he came to Southeastern. And how's worst mistake had probably been extremely painful for one particular wrestler, for sure. And, you know, and then he... And then he almost got tears in his eyes, as only Don Carson could do during an interview. And he described how he felt when he saw that wrestler, that he had busted his eyes and paid for his eyes to be busted and uh, and hurt him so badly. When he saw that guy coming to the ring to rescue him with those three guys beating the hell out of him, he just started tearing up thinking about it. And then he, he invited Ron Wright to come out in the middle of what his segment here, in the middle of this film, and uh, and and talk to fans about uh, why he came, and the studio crowd obviously popped when Ron Wright came around into the studio, and uh, he and Carson hugged each other like they'd been lifelong friends, and uh, Carson asked Les to show the remainder of the video at that point, and he and Ron Wright talked over what happened and why Ron Wright came down, and uh, you know, and they end up hugging each other again at the end of the segment. And they left the set, big rousing cheer from the audience, obviously. And it was one of those great moments at the beginning of a TV show that's just unforgettable. I mean, you can't get a show started off much better than that. And during the personality profile in the middle of this TV, Homer and his men watch an edited version of the same match. But this one is edited to their point of view rather than to Don Carson's point of view. You know, and when Ron Wright comes to save him, they're going, what's he doing down here? He's got no business. You know, we got things going our way. You know, so obviously they had a different type of uh, view of what had gone on. The crowd obviously was just as unhappy with their version of the story as they were happy with the Carson and Wright version of the story. And that made sense because, you know, Homer's whole personality profile was to his point of view and complaining about not having chances for Tanaka to be champion, Southeastern champion, and his boys to be tag champions, and his same type of argument. I ended up the show, and I took away Homer's consistent complaint about not getting any title shots for his men. I wrestled the Novell Austin on the last match of the show, 
for the Southeastern Championship. And I uh, beat him. I won the match. And uh, it was a great show. And in an extremely important rating month of May, it was really important to have great shows during those rating months. So let's talk about the following Friday night and the results in Chilhowee Park in the amphitheater, another big crowd. The opening match was a great one. A guy coming in out of Atlanta who was a young boy, uh, he was fast improving. He wasn't working a whole lot for me in Southeastern, but he was working on Atlanta's TV. He was working on Tampa TVs. He was a job boy, but he's not going to be a job boy forever. That's Jerry Stubbs. He's on this card. Wow. He's the opening match on this card, and he's wrestling against Butch Malone. <laughs> and Butch Malone's a popular babyface at this point. So uh, this is a good match, a great match. Uh, Jerry's a good little heel. Uh, Malone is a good babyface. Uh, they have a really tremendous match. And oddly enough, the second match is going to be Jerry Stubbs' cousin, Mike Stallings. Going to be wrestling against a 300-pounder Don Lambert. You know, Stallings is a big rising star, just like Stubbs is. I mean, they're both young guys. They start about the same time. And Stallings actually is a little bit ahead of Stubbs in his development at this point. And they had a really great match, uh, Stallings and Lambert. And uh, Stallings uh, continued his long winning streak, which he had won some great matches in the past six or eight weeks. And he'd been using the sleeper hold, and that's how he won this one, Lambert with the sleeper. Third match was the second week in a row that I was defending the Southeastern Championship belt against another babyface, Dick Steinborn, who was the Mid-American champion, by the way. And uh, that match, the week before, had been a 45-minute time limit, and we wrestled to the time limit. Fantastic babyface match. Wasn't a single punch throw. Uh, this time, the time limit had been extended to a one hour. We wrestled to a one hour draw this night. And uh, same as the week before, not a single punch. Crowd standing for a lot of a baby face match. Uh, it was wonderful. It was just great to have those type of matches. Uh, you know, and uh, again, we wrestled to a draw. But this one, I think, might have been even more exciting than the Friday before. Uh, and, and these matches, these babyface matches, which very few territories were doing these, they changed the attitudes of the fans in the Knoxville area. When I got there in 1974, it was a blood and guts territory. That's all those fans wanted to see was somebody bleeding and, and very little wrestling. And at this point, I was really pleased to see that the Southeastern fans and the larger group of Southeastern fans by far now that were there, we're really into this pure wrestling match, maybe as much as a brawl. I mean, they just really loved it. So my dream of uh, wrestling becoming the most important part of a match was becoming a reality. The concept we're going to talk about later in today's learning tree, a little bit about fans and how you get them accustomed to watching wrestling and to enjoying the pure beauty of the sport. So the next match, Southeastern Tag Championship. Now, five weeks earlier than this match, the champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan, uh, had successfully defended their belts against the superstars when they put up their belts against the superstars' mask that night, five weeks earlier. Superstars lost, and they were unmasked that night. Since that time, another team had arrived. They called themselves the Avengers. Everybody knew it was the same team, just under a different outfit and different hoods. The name was appropriate. Considering it was the same team that 
was trying to avenge that loss from five weeks earlier. So they came back as the Avengers. Pretty good name for the fact that uh, they had been uh, trounced and beaten and, and humiliated. And they're back to try to get some type of revenge. So for the first time in uh, five weeks, the champions would again be defending their titles against the former superstars, now the Avengers. And this one had the same <laughs> stipulation that the one before that if the Avengers lost, they had to unmask, and by gosh, they lost again. So it wasn't a whole lot of people wondering what they're going to look like. They'd already seen them five weeks earlier with their hoods off, and now they get to see them again with their hoods off. It's pretty humiliating for Dick Dunn and for Tarzan Baxter. It was a heck of a match. In fact, uh, both Rob and Jimmy were bleeding. It was uh, Dunn and Baxter really gave it all to them in this match, uh, and the crowd. Uh, they just went wild uh, seeing them being unmasked twice in five weeks. So this angle between these guys had been running for a long, long time. It was one of probably becoming one of the best tag angles in the history of Southeastern wrestling by this point. Uh, you had two unmaskings of the same guys, uh, and it's not over yet, oddly enough. So the final main event that night was uh, Don Carson and Ron Wright as the partner. Uh, facing Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin. They were managed by, obviously, General Homer Odell. This one was pretty darn wild, uh, and that's what their fans expected, and they got everything they expected to get. All five of them ended up in the ring, Carson and Rice, but then the other three jumped them, and uh, they they had a hell of a fight. Uh, it was pretty nasty. and uh, So we're returning that match the following week, and we're going to do it in a most unusual way. Not just a regular tag match. This is going to be a five-man tag match in which Wright and Carson are going to face all three of Tanaka, Austin, and they're going to put Homer Odell in the ring with them. And it's going to be two out of three fall. So when you got two guys against three, and then you're going to go two out of three falls, it certainly puts the advantage in the, in the, in the guys that's got the three men on the team because it's going to be a long darn match. Very interesting. A very interesting idea, and it turns out to be a heck of a match. Mm. Following Friday night is going to be June 4th, 1976. And uh, we're going to be discussing that next week. But that week is going to turn out to be one of the most historic and shocking nights in Southeastern history. So many things are going to happen the following Friday night on June the 4th. It's going to set up the summer of 1976. Interesting. Okay, so it looks like there's a transition city here. Are we moving someplace else now, Ron? Yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk about the, some of the southeastern cities that we haven't talked about in a while, especially some of these new cities. that uh, We mentioned Corbin, Kentucky last week, talked about a racetrack. I just want to go back uh, every once in a while and, and kind of talk about what's happening in some of these other cities as well. I want to start with the only one that runs weekly, just like Knoxville does. And that's the Tri-City area up there in the northeastern part of the state, Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol, Tennessee. Yep. They're called the Tri-Cities. And they run there every Tuesday night in a Johnson City Recreation Center. Pretty nice little building, but not nearly big enough. Like, we're having a problem everywhere at this point. No place is big enough to hold all the fans most of the time. So this city had its own television, WJH held in Johnson City. It's a uh, VHF channel, it's CBS, 
you know, it's big time channel and, uh, you know, uh, we run our program. It airs in Knoxville and then it'll air the following Saturday. The same show that aired in Knoxville the following Saturday airs in Johnson City. And the card that was booked in Knoxville follows right into Johnson City, the same card, depending on the TV. So uh, I split the profit in this town uh, with uh, Jerry Jarrett's mother, Christine Jarrett. Uh, Christine Jarrett worked in my grandfather's office in Nashville for many, many years. And somehow her and her son had gotten some type of rights to Johnson City, Tennessee. So when I went in to run Johnson City, I ran it with them uh, with the agreement that we would split the money. I would handle the town. Uh, I would send my wrestlers to it. Worked out good for me. I needed places for guys to work. Uh, when I first got there, didn't have enough places for them to work. And this arrangement is going really well. Johnson City is only a 200-mile round trip from Knoxville. 200 miles, you're there and back pretty early. And uh, it was a good little town. It was doing pretty well. We started to add, having to add seats in the early March of 76. We were just about to the limit of what we were going to be able to do in, in, in that building. And the fans there were kind of crazy, like the other cities in the southeast. But it wasn't because they'd not had wrestling. they had had wrestling there for many years. In fact, my grandfather, Roy, and his brother, Herb, Lester, another Welch brother, they had all wrestled there, uh, Roy and Herb, as far back as the 1930s. So this Tri-City areas had seen wrestling for a long time, but the fans were just as crazy as other places. They loved their wrestling. Kingsport, one of these towns, is the home of Ron and Don Wright. That's where they were born, raised, and still live there. So I was concerned about the upcoming summer because it's the best time of year everywhere in the nation for wrestling. Summertime is really good. And uh, I was concerned that we're not going to be able to put half the people that show up here in this building. So wasn't a bad problem to have. So I couldn't really complain about it, but it was still becoming somewhat of a problem uh, because of where we had to find the big places that we could run. The problem of not having enough room for the fans was uh, being eliminated in one of the cities. I'm going to talk about another city that we ran every other Saturday night, Morristown, Tennessee. It was only an 80-mile round trip from Knoxville. The guys loved this town because they could leave home at 7 o'clock, and they'd be home by 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. They didn't have to drive hardly anywhere. And this town was a good little town, and we were drawing some big crowds there. So, you know, it alternated every other Saturday night with Harlan, Kentucky, another great town, but it was a further distance to Harlan. But Marstown had this small building. We'd had a difficulty with it in the wintertime because it didn't have any other big buildings. It held about 2,000 people. And this building was just packed every every Saturday night that we went there uh, during the wintertime. So the problem, again, is a little bit the size of the building, same as in Johnson City. But thankfully, right next to this building where we operated in was a baseball stadium. And it was a pretty good-sized baseball stadium. And now we're in the summertime, kind of like uh, running outside in the amphitheater in Knoxville. We're running in a covered stadium in Marstown. And we were able to double the size of the crowds. We could take our crowd from 2,000 in that small building in, in Marstown, almost to 4,000 in the baseball stadium. <clears throat> we had ringside chairs sitting out there on the infield. And then obviously it gave more fans the opportunity to see us. We could do hot angles there. 
that we had to be very careful about doing in other towns because we'd have these riots. But, you know, this baseball stadium had the wire across the front of the grandstand to protect. For us, it prohibited the largest portion up there in the grandstand from getting out on the field and getting hit by a wrestler. It's going to cost me money, man. So, so, you know, I liked it. I like that fence up there. I said, like, yeah, boys, we can get some heat here, you know, because they can't get to us, you know. And the guys like that too, because they didn't want to have it. They didn't want to have a riot. They sure didn't want to have to fight the crowd. So everybody liked it. Uh, it was wonderful wrestling outside. Great part about that part of the country in this time of year in the summer. We had a lot of outside venues, and uh, it's great wrestling outside in the summer. The heat is not. Uh, you're being from that. Uh, from that Dothan area, Dave, you're you're familiar with that farm center and the heat in there on a on a summer night. Are you, you know? kidding me? It had to feel really good in, in Knoxville. I mean, your elevation's a little higher, right? There you go. So you're up in the mountains a little bit, and it's just really in, it's invigorating to wrestle outside right. yeah. in those type of towns. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, Corbin, Kentucky, the one we talked about last week, where I set up the racetrack. We'd run a couple shows there, and we'd done really well. So uh, I wanted to run it pretty regularly. So I started scheduling Corbin, Kentucky every other Wednesday night. And it made it much easier for me because I'd been scheduling one town and another town, and I was having to deal with old uh, pick and choose where we were going to go. I wanted to get some regularity. So now I've got Marstown and Harlan every other Saturday night. I've got Corbin, Kentucky. Every other Wednesday, I've got Johnson City every Tuesday. Uh, so I'm beginning to get some regularity in my schedule, and it makes it much easier as an owner and a booker if you can do it that way. Here was the typical type of card. I'm going to give you a card for Corbin, Kentucky, that was on Wednesday, June the 2nd, to give fans an idea kind of what we were doing in these little towns. Uh, I always wanted to give them the same rivalry matches that they saw on TV you know, but uh, I never wanted to give them the same card as Knoxville. In fact, I didn't want any single match on any of these small cities to be the same as the Knoxville card. So mm -hmm. on Wednesday, June 2nd, Corbin, Kentucky, Jimmy Golden has a warm-up match with the Avenger number two. Mike Stalling wrestled against the Golden Hawk. Big Butch Malone wrestled against General Homer Odell. Now, that's a pretty much potential main event right there, you know. But he's not wrestling. Malone and General Homer Odell aren't wrestling in Knoxville anymore. So it's a good booster uh, for that card. But Robert, Jimmy, and I wrestled in a six-man tag against the Avengers and Norvell Austin. And the last match is Don Carson against Tor Tanaka, managed by Homer Odell. Now, this is great. I mean, Carson's never wrestled Tanaka in Knoxville. He's not even had this match in Knoxville. He's going to wrestle him in Corbin, Kentucky. I think in Corbin, Kentucky that night, we drew 5,000 people. Wow. You know, and uh, we drew about 5,200, 5,300 in Knoxville. So we had almost as many people in Corbin, Kentucky as we drew in Knoxville. So it was a good thing. Uh, what was happening there was very good. It was going to last for the entire summer because we were going to be able to stay out there and, and run those matches as long as it was warming up. Had almost all the stars in the territory on this card, but there was every one of it was in a different combination. That's interesting. Hey, it's been a while since you've talked about Australia. Let's hear some more of those stories about Australia. 
So let's take the Studcast to Australia then, man. I'll tell you a couple of stories. Uh, and and I, I said last week, since I was doing this uh, Super Studcast on Jim Barnett, it kind of as a tribute to him, I would do a story or two about Australia every one of the next four weeks. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I want to tell you a couple of day, and, and they're kind of uh, shark stories, but they're really yeah. more than just shark stories. Yeah, so, you mentioned the shark thing earlier. Yeah, what's that about? Yeah. Well, when I go there, I take my wife and I got my two little boys and they're both very young. And we get an apartment in a little area outside of Sydney called Cronulla. And Cronulla sits right on the Pacific in a beautiful spot. Uh, and we had an apartment building that was a high rise apartment. We were probably 15 floors up. We had a balcony. Uh, you could walk out on the balcony and you could see the surfers down below and off to the left. There was a crescent beach, like a half moon beach that probably went for three miles and it was gorgeous. You know, you had the surfers waves in one area where there were some rocks and then further on down, you had all of the the people that were enjoying the beach. Uh, Body surfing was what I was into. Didn't ever mess around much with boards, but I loved the body surf. And this area here was just fantastic. All of Australia basically was great for body surfing because they had big waves pretty much everywhere so this beach was beautiful as i said you could see it from up above and when i went down the first day to the beach i went over by the rocks where the surfers were and uh, and i watched some surfing and these rocks were kind of like volcanic rocks they had these little holes in them and the water would splash and crash over the top of the rocks and then the holes in, inside of them would have water in them. And I'm out there, and then there's a few people around, and thank goodness, because I I didn't know anything about Australia at this point. Didn't know what was dangerous and what wasn't. And I see this little blue octopus. He's in in one of those holes in the volcanic rock. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, look at that pretty little sucker. And there's a guy not too far away from me, an Aussie. and, And I start reaching down there to touch him right you know let's just see what this is all about and the aussie goes uh hey mate he goes uh, i wouldn't do that if i were you <laughs> and, I, and i go why you know i don't know anything about it you know just a pretty little blue octopus you know and he goes that's a blue octi no yeah it's an octopus isn't it yeah it's a blue octopus and he goes uh, no he's not just a blue octi son he goes uh did that boy they sting you he says uh we take you up on the beach, you know, and uh, he says, uh, in just a few minutes, you're gone. Wow. <laughs> I go, wow. I go, wait a minute. No, you, you, you mean, you mean I die? And he goes, yeah, mate. He goes, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty poisonous. You know, so, so I like, I'm ready to go from that area. I say, where the heck were the rocks? I'm going on down here and do a little body surf. <laughs> so I go down to the next part of the beach. And the first thing I notice is there's these lifeguard looking towers. About every hundred yards, strung out all the way down for the two miles of beach or whatever it was. I never, ever walked to the other end of it. It was such a long beach. But anyway, there's these towers there. And I'm thinking, that's kind of strange, you know. Uh, lifeguard towers are pretty cool, you know. And there's a guy sitting in every one of them. I thought, well, that's a pretty cool deal, you know. And they're watching out for and thousands of people on the beach. The beaches were just crowded in Australia. It was a big thing to go to the beach in Australia. 
The surf was good. Like I said, body surfing was tremendous. Temperature of the water was cold as hell, to be honest, man. I mean, uh, you know, the Pacific's pretty cold. Even when you go into California and you get in the the ocean, it's pretty cold. But when you get down there in a country that's south of the equator, and uh, Australia is the next closest continent to Antarctica, you know, the water is just cold. So take you a while to get used to the water and to get out in the water. So I finally get out. And I'm able to stay, and uh, this is pretty cool. And I'm I'm body surfing, and you could go pretty far out there. It's amazing how how the bottom there uh, just went slowly out, and in a lot of places you catch a wave and ride it for fifty yards sometimes, just like having a surfboard. So I'm enjoying the hell out of it, and all of a sudden there's a horn that goes off up on the beach, and there's a guy looking. The guy up in the uh, one of the uh, lifeguard towers is. He's uh, got two flags, and he's waving his flags and everything. And so I just keep catching waves. I don't know what's going on. You know, I figure, well, maybe somebody's drowning or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, so I'm catching another wave, and I'm catching another wave. And I kind of notice that, you know, everybody's kind of leaving me. You know, (laughs) I'm out there by myself. And there's one Aussie, thank God, that's not too far away. And he says, uh, and then the waves are crashing. You can't hear too well sometimes out in the big surf. And he, he screams at me and he says, hey, mate, it goes a shock on. And I, and I said, what? I couldn't hear what he said. He said, the shock on. And uh, I still couldn't. I couldn't understand the uh, Aussies for a while there. It takes a while to get used to that, yeah. that accent. And uh, finally, the third time he goes, shock on. It was loud enough. I heard him. I said, shark on. Oh, so so I beat everybody to the beach. I mean, I look like uh, Johnny Weissmiller, man. I mean, I just, boy, I mean, I just, I made a dead path for that beach. I got there and, and everybody was still sauntering out of the water and they were all complaining, you know, they're like, oh, mate, well, you know, what the heck is that? So then a helicopter comes down the beach and the helicopter passes two or three times and I'm standing there. So I asked the guy, the lifeguard, I guess, I guess I, uh, you know, if you, you, saw, you had to save anybody today? And he goes, what are you talking about, mate? You know, and I said, well, you know, what are you doing here? What's your job? And he goes, I'm a shot guard, mate. <laughs> he goes, I don't watch for bodies. He said, I don't care if people drown. You know, that's their problem. You know, I'm just watching for the sharks. And I'm like, gosh, man, are you kidding? You know, we don't have that problem in America. Anyway. Uh, the guy, the helicopter comes back and he gets on the microphone and he gets right pretty much off of where I was. And he, he hovers there and, and he talks to the towers on the beach and he goes, you got a 10 foot Mako and a 12 foot white. (laughs) So everybody just stands out there on the beach. I'm like, Whoa, man, I gosh, I could have been eaten, you know? So (laughs) it was crazy. I was like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And then after a while, the helicopter goes back and forth, and then he flies off. And, uh, you know, a horn goes off again. And I, the, every one of those thousands of people, they just thundered out into the water. It was like, and I stood there. I was like, now, wait a minute, you know. How the hell do they know the sharks are gone, you know? I mean, uh, I'm going to wait in here, and I might see somebody get eaten by a shark. It ain't going to be me, right? So. It was just my first experience with sharks. 
So I got another real quick, and I'll tell about Perth, Australia. Now, this is on the far side of Australia from Sydney. It's on the western side of Australia, on the Indian Ocean. It's a beautiful city. Toward the end of the tour, we go to Perth. We wrestle in a, and uh, they had the 1956 Olympics, I think it was 56 in Australia, and they, the part of the Olympics was in this stadium that we wrestled in. Big old beautiful stadium. Anyway, during the day, we got there early. Wherever we went, we flew in early, usually every day. I would get a cab and go to the beach, and wherever it was, Adelaide, Melbourne, it did Brisbane, it didn't make any difference what city it was. I liked to go to the beach. And so I go to the beach, and I'm going to go, and that day, there's a wrestler named Danny Little Bear. He's an American Indian, uh, and he'd never been surfing, never been body surfing in his life. And I, I say, Danny, won't you go with me, man? We're going to go to the beach down here. And the name of this beach was Scarborough. It was one of the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen. Just absolutely pristine. And it's during the week, so there's nobody on it. And so we get out and we start body surfing. And finally, there's an old guy that walks down the beach and he sees us out there body surfing. And he, he crosses his legs and he sits down right at the edge of the water line. Mm-hmm. And he's watching us body surf. So I didn't think anything about it. We body surf for probably 30, 45 minutes. And this guy just sits there and watches us. So when we came in, I go, uh, so there I go, uh, uh, how you doing, man? He, I, I'm good, mate. I'm good, mate. And I said, well, wh- what are you doing? Uh, you know, um, you you're just watching us out there surf? And he goes, oh, no, mate. He said, you know, he says, uh, I was watching you because he said, you know, just a fortnight ago, he said, right out there where you boys were, he says, a 20-foot white come in and he swallowed the thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, I said, no, no, no. I said, no, you, you, you don't mean he swallowed him. I said, he bit him, right? He said, oh, no, mate, he swallowed him whole. Oh. <laughs> I was like, <Wow>. <laughs> Daddy Little Bear, almost, he almost went crazy. He wanted to beat the hell out of me. Yeah. We could have got killed out there, man. <laughs> the moral of this story is pay attention to the locals, Ron. Come on. <laughs> well, the problem was there was no locals on the beach that day. <laughs> Uh, I, I learned from the other routine with the shark to, to get out of the water when the locals do. So uh, it was just part of being in Australia. It was a tremendous country. I love being there, but it was a dangerous place. It was really a dangerous place. Yeah. yeah. Wow. How much time did you actually spend there with your family? Two months, a little bit more <laughs> than two months. You know, got to really, really see the country and and to learn to appreciate those people, they were very hardy people, and uh, they were they loved their sports, and it was it was a it was a great experience. I take nothing for my time spent in Australia. I love that country. Was it a cultural experience for the kids too, or were they old enough by then? They weren't old enough, which is really bad. Uh, my youngest was only about eight months old. Yeah, okay. And the oldest one was just about three years old. Too bad they couldn't have enjoyed it a lot more, but uh, it was a great experience for me. I certainly enjoyed it. And do not touch those blue octopuses. Yeah, no, I, I would. Uh, I would tell you, we don't. Thank God, we don't have them here. It's kind of crazy. And it wasn't just uh, <laughs> sharks and blue octopuses. They had right. the most deadly snakes, the most deadly spiders. I mean, yeah, oh, everything yeah. in that country would kill you. <laughs> yeah, right in the center of town too. So wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Another awesome job right there, Ron. 
Hey, Ron, give us a little idea of what we're going to do after the break. Well, we're going to talk about billboards and advertising. We're going to go in a totally different direction than we normally do. And I think fans may find this fascinating. You know, it's a, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it would be a very good, but we're going to do something with billboards that not even the billboard people knew about. That's cool. All right, that is coming up. Stay tuned. This Studcast will continue in a moment. Patrons worldwide are in agreement. Super Studcast number 29. Part one, more than two hours, is the longest part one of a Super Studcast so far. And every minute is filled with either the remarkable story of one of the most famous promoters and owner of wrestling companies ever, or stories of experiences with the man of mystery at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The stud and Brian Lass swap thoughts and facts about the beginning of Jim Barnett's career in professional wrestling beginning in 1949, his first rise to power in 1940. 55, the scandal that made him run, and his arrival in Australia in 1964. If that weren't enough, Robert Fuller, Les Thatcher, and Jimmy Golden add to the story with their own stories. This super studcast, headed for more than four hours, will also include Jim Cornette, David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, and Charlie Platt in part two. That'll be released on Tuesday, May 26th at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This four-hour fantastic journey through the unforgettable life of Jim Barnett will still be only $2.99. The Stud and Brian Last have raised the bar. Don't miss it. We're back on another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Where to now, Ron? You said something about billboards and advertising earlier. What did you do with billboards that was unusual in the Knoxville area? Well, I, I got my first billboards in 1975 from a company called Lamar. It, Lamar was one of the biggest billboard companies in America. They were very big in the southern part of the country. Yeah. Uh, Lamar Outdoor Advertising was the name of the company. In 1975, my first year in Knoxville, I bought the small billboards for about one month. I just wanted to see what effect that billboards would have compared to regular advertising. They're an unusually strong form of advertising, I found out. And uh, and I said, I'm just getting my feet wet. And that's why I want to talk about this today. I'd had one billboard buy. It was small. Uh, it wasn't tremendously expensive. And, and I got some success. I felt like I got some success out of it. 1976, at this point, we're doing good. And we're about to enter summer, which is, like I said earlier in the show, the best time of the year in the nation for wrestling was in the summer. And I knew I wanted to do the billboards again, but I thought this time I want to do something bigger. This time I decided I wanted to do freeway billboards. Uh, and because they're about three times the size of the small billboards that I'd bought the first time. You can't buy a bunch of big freeway billboards without spending a heck of a lot of money. Right. And Knoxville was a unique city in a way. It's set at the junction of two interstates. Interstate 75 that runs north and south in this country, from Florida basically to the Great Lakes. Yeah. And Interstate 75 ran through downtown Knoxville. And Interstate 40 that runs east and west from coast to coast runs yeah. through downtown Knoxville, too. So you had these two major interstates running together in the heart of the city. Obviously, it was a tremendous traffic flow there. 
because it's two interstates and plus the population of that area, they're on that same interstate all the time too. So uh, both of these interstates, like I said, they met in downtown Knoxville at a poorly designed spot, (laughs) which was appropriately called by everybody in that part of the country, Malfunction Junction. (laughs) <laughs> which meant that they'd screwed it up when they built it. And then uh, when you got downtown and you got these two freeways running together, you had a traffic jam consistently wow. and constantly. This exact same spot where this traffic jam takes place, uh, Lamar was a smart enough company that they picked out a couple of buildings that sat right by that malfunction junction in which cars are just walking at walk speed going by these billboards. Uh, they set these two giant freeway billboards on top of buildings, two right. buildings, side by side. And when I first went there, that's the first thing I noticed is like, God, look at those billboards, man. Wow, I want to get one of those someday. So 10 months prior to getting this billboard to go up, I went to the company and I, I asked them about it. And they said, it takes a long time to get on. I said, I don't care how long it is. I want one of those billboards in 76, in 1976. So they get in touch with me about April and say, you know, you need to come down and talk to us about your billboard. We're going to put you up on that billboard in May. We're talking about May of 1976. That's the time frame we're in right now. So I go down to see them. And uh, this billboard, the, the great thing about it is built with billboards, it's how far ahead from the billboard can you actually see it? Because right. you're driving at a great deal of speed, right? So you have to have what I call read time. I learned a lot about billboards because I used them in hockey. You have to have a lot of read time for a big billboard to be effective for you. Yeah. So because this set in Malfunction Junction, they had 10 minutes of read time sometimes. Right. You know? I mean, they had no place to go. They, It was like, wow, what are they going to do? It was absolutely one of the best places for a billboard to be set that I ever saw as long as I was in hockey or wrestling. So they asked me to come down and they say, uh, you know, tell us what you got. You know, what do you want to do? So, so I come down to the office and I got my artwork and my, you know, my design thoughts. And basically I went in there thinking something totally that they had never thought of. I actually blew their minds this day. I sat down with two guys and I showed them my artwork. It was a wrestling photo of uh, actually my brother suplexing a guy. And uh, it was a stand-up suplex where he had him straight up in the air and the guy's feet were up at the top of the picture and Rob's feet were at the bottom. It was a perfect picture for a billboard. It just screamed wrestling. First of all, you know, obviously they had wrestling outfit, wrestling tights and boots on, and they're doing a wrestling move. These guys loved the picture. They they had never seen anything like it. So, you know, but it was my idea that, that I had for the picture that's really going to be something big for those guys. So you got to bear in mind, this is 1976 now. It's back when a lot of things have never been done. So, the, you know, the first thing they asked me to see what I wanted written on it, because it's important with a billboard, you can't put a, a paragraph on it or anything because people are not going to be able to see that. So I had my stuff together, you know, and I said, I want Southeastern Wrestling Fridays, Channel 10, 2 p.m. Saturday. That's it. Boom. So yeah. they were like, wow. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You know, they said, yeah, that'll work. So then they asked me to see the shot I wanted to use. So I showed them this shot. 
And it was of the leg, you know, the wrestler being his, his feet are way up at the top of the picture. And then, and the body of Rob is down below him at the bottom. And, uh, and uh, they're both straight up, and, you know, and, and they looked at me and instantly one of them said, uh, we can't do that because uh, it's too tall and it won't fit on our billboard. Proportion. You know, yeah, it ain't, it ain't proportion, you know, it, it's too tall. And yeah. I said, uh, I said, uh, I don't want it to fit. And they looked at me and they went, like, well, what are you eating? And I said, I want it to extend out of the top of the billboard. Oh, yeah. I, I, said, I, want, I said, I want this billboard to make every person that passes it see it. I, right. I don't want a regular billboard. I said, I right. want this. I want that wrestler's leg sticking out the top of the billboard. Wow. And, uh, and I watched them and, and they looked at each other and it's like, you know, it's like in that old cartoon, you know, where the light bulb goes off in their heads. And they looked at each other and they smiled. And uh, right then I, I, I thought I might have instantly created a new dimension for billboards here, man. You know what I mean? These yeah. guys never thought of this. I was like, how come you never thought of this? Something like that. Now, so, since you're making the billboard taller and, and actually going out of their prescribed lines, did it cost you more to add on to the oh, building? Oh, yeah. It's called an extension. Yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, they said, sure, we can do it, but you're covering more area and you're going to have to pay for it. I said, I don't care. I okay. said, how much more effective is it going to be with those legs sticking out than just the average board? Exactly. What kind of money was that back in 1976? Uh, that one billboard for, uh, I got it for uh, four weeks. Okay. And it cost me $3,000. You know, I could have bought. Wow. Uh, radio of think of radio time i could have bought in 1976 right. three thousand dollars yeah i mean you know it was a staggering amount of money but i saw the future of it and and if it had just been a billboard sitting along a freeway and people going to drive by it at 80 miles an hour and they're not going to really see it it wouldn't yeah. have been effective but because it's set in malfunction junction and everybody's driving 20 miles an hour and they've got to see that board there's no way they're going to miss it. And now I want to put those feet sticking out of the board. It was just a remarkable idea. It was a hell of an idea. And uh, yeah. the billboard was the talk of the town. I had people said, gosh, man, I see a new billboard. Everybody said, oh, I love your billboard. Uh, that's all they wanted to talk about. How and many that, people it reached is, is a really big deal. And, and obviously that was the talk of the town. Yeah, it was the talk of the town, and it was probably the talk of outdoor advertising companies all across the country, too. I mean, this idea probably went, bam, these guys said, well, hell, you know, especially so Lamar. They own they own these companies in every major city. They said, hell, let's offer these damn extensions. I mean, this is a great idea. Right. So, yeah. you know, it, it was not just a good idea for me. It was a great idea for billboard companies. They liked it. They liked the idea so much. That they gave me an extra two weeks at the end of my run. They said, Ron, we're not going to pull it down. We love it. <laughs> you know, we've had so many comments. People are crazy about it. He goes, wow, it's good for our business. So they said, we're going to leave it. We're going to give you two free weeks. I was like, heck yeah. Appreciate it. Do it. Awesome. Hey, like, they probably tried to get you to join their marketing side of the. <laughs> the that's, that's really cool. Wow. Oh, uh, you know, and then I don't, that's not the end of my billboard, uh, thinking, uh, once I got into hockey, I really went crazy with billboards and we did things in Nashville and in Cincinnati that same type of deal. The bubs went off in those guys' heads and they had been seeing extensions. We went far beyond just a simple extension. We really cranked up billboards. 
It was good. I like playing with them, and it was fantastic, fantastic advertising. I mean, our business exploded in yeah. uh, 1976, and because of that, and uh, you know, I can't say positively how much money I made or how much it affected me. But uh, that summer, I can tell you, business really exploded. And what was really good about it, it was the beginning of a run that's going to put me permanently in the Coliseum. And uh, that's what I dreamed of when I bought the company. I said, there's that big Coliseum. Why go there once a month? Why go there once every three months? I want to be there every Friday night. And that billboard, I really feel like, kind of got me into the Coliseum on a permanent basis. And uh that meant a lot to me, money-wise. That's awesome. Listen, like your grandfather and like your father, way ahead of your time, another brilliant idea right there that really did work out. All right, speaking of working, time for us all to get that cold drink and take a seat under the learning tree and let you continue working, stud. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> so, yeah, I've already got it cranked up. So, yeah, this is a good question today. It's, uh, you know... This question comes from a gentleman named Floyd McDaniel, and he asked, did promoters train the fans to want a certain kind of wrestling, like in the Florida or Southeastern Territory versus the Detroit or Ohio Territory, or did fans train promoters or demand a certain style of wrestling from promoters? Now, basically, I think he says, his question is, uh, did the promoter decide what kind of wrestling we're going to have, or did the fan make the promoter have the type of wrestling that they wanted? It's an interesting question. Let's start with the different styles of professional wrestling. And there's a lot of different styles of professional wrestling, and anybody that watches the sport knows that. So the first two territories he mentions, Florida and Southeastern, uh, they're very similar in wrestling styles. They were what I would have to call wrestling-based territories, uh, Florida for sure, and I wanted Southeastern to be that as well. And by that, I mean that most matches had a significant amount of pure wrestling in them. You know, every match had some wrestling in it. And uh, when I came there in 74, that wasn't the case. Some matches didn't have a single wrestling move, and it was just all a brawl, fight and blood. And so and in order to make that happen, when you own a territory, your wrestlers, they need a basic amateur knowledge of the sport. They need to be taught takedowns, as an example, how to get a guy off his feet and down to on, onto the mat. And uh, to do that, you have to execute either a leg dive or a fireman's carry, or you get behind an opponent and you snatch him up in the air and you you throw him down on the mat and you, and you dive on top of him. Uh, so, you know, it, it's pretty much basic. A lot of basic uh, wrestling is pretty basic, and it's back to almost amateur styles. They also need to learn how to escape. So if a guy gets behind you and he takes you down, how do you get away from him? In order to do that, you have to learn how to do switches, and you have to learn all different types of methods of escape to not only get away from the guy, but get back to your feet. You can't simply get away from him, and he grabs you again and takes you down. You have to figure out how to get back to your feet again. So as a professional wrestler, this should have been the basic training before you take the next step. And But it wasn't always that case. Uh, you know, most wrestlers, from the beginning of wrestling back in the early 20s, when they first started having them, pro wrestlers uh, begins, they all had this. They had this was the, the basic stuff. And if you didn't learn this, you couldn't get a job wrestling back in the 1920s. It was obvious that when you watch these guys work, 
you know, in the Florida and the southeastern, hopefully the southeastern territory, you realized that they had some some wrestling knowledge. Now, let's talk about the other territories he brought up. He mentioned Detroit and the Ohio Territory. There were some wrestlers that, that weren't lucky enough to get that type of training. The, it depended on who trained you as to whether you knew how to wrestle or you didn't. Those that were trained by somebody that didn't know how to wrestle, they got a totally different training. They didn't get the basics of wrestling. They were probably trained by somebody that, like I said, don't have any knowledge of it. How's he going to teach you? He don't know it himself. So there were quite a few that didn't know a wrestling move that I have wrestled in the ring before. And it's very difficult to work with a guy that knows absolutely no, no wrestling. So this type of wrestler is trained to do something different. He's trained to do high spots, which means, uh, you know, moves in which you're bouncing off the ropes and you drop down, you leapfrog. They teach you that. It has nothing to do with wrestling, but it's, it's what a lot of guys, about all they knew to do. Or they teach you how to throw good punches because you're going to end up fighting. I mean, you can't wrestle, so you're going to have to get in there and throw punches and fight. Or they teach you just how to move guys around in the ring and, and, and not basically create any action. A bad match. Basically, you, you're creating a good match in, in Florida and you're creating a bad match in Detroit in the state of Ohio. Those guys didn't have any knowledge of, of wrist locks and hammer locks. And the chain wrestling moves that makes wrestling look so good when you've got a guy in a headlock and you go to a hammerlock and then you back up on your feet in a wrist lock and then, a, you know, an arm drag. You know, there's just certain things that make you look like a wrestler. So these guys, they had no basic skills and, and they're not ever going to look like a real wrestler, you know, and that's what you will find in the Detroit and the Ohio Territory. And it had a lot to do with who ran that company. And it was uh, Eddie Farhat uh, was his real name. He was the Sheik. Uh, the Sheik had, if he had any wrestling skills, he didn't want to show it. The Sheik was a blood and guts guy. Uh, mm -hmm. He would attack guys going to the ring. He didn't let them get to the ring. He used spikes and gimmicks and blood and, and he bled and they bled and the crowd bled sometimes. It was like, you know, but yeah, but you know, that, that's not real wrestling. And, and what happens is it doesn't perpetuate itself. It does not continue. It never becomes big. It just doesn't. It's too far removed from what the actual sport is all about. What had happened is, you know, it, it's a bunch of guys with limited wrestling skills that resort to something totally different than real wrestling. And usually it eventually leads to small crowds, to dying territories, and in my opinion, to desperation. Uh, desperation to survive, you know, I mean, it's not what you want to do if you own a wrestling company. So I'm going to add another style of wrestling that uh, Mr. McDaniels didn't even mention, probably didn't think about. There's a, the Mexican and the Lucha Libre style. And there's a lot of this in the Southwestern United States, always was, always has been. And this style was short on wrestling most of the time, but it was long on acrobatics and masks. You know, yeah. Mexicans wore a lot of masks, yeah. and they're going to do a lot of high-flying moves. They're not going to do much wrestling. And any wrestling moves they use are simply involved, uh, you know, just to get to a high spot of some kind. And um, and when they do a wrestling move, they don't sell it like traditional style in, in wrestling. They, you know, they just used it as a transition from one high-flying move to the next and then, then to a false finish and another false finish, and their style was totally different. I don't think it was a 
appropriate style. I don't think it was good for wrestling, and I don't think it drew money. It was a totally different style, though, than either the real wrestling style or the blood and gut style. So promoters and owners, uh, they were the ones that's going to decide what kind of wrestling they want to present in their companies. Uh, like my grandfather, Roy, he learned his wrestling. Uh, you know, he, he damn sure had the basics uh, taught to him, and, uh, and he, he went far beyond the basics. Uh, he learned shoot moves the hard way. You know, he actually got hurt by the guy that was training him. And the guy that training him was one of the greatest shooters of all time, Dutch Mantell. Dutch wanted to hurt him. He didn't want to train him. He didn't want him to become a wrestler, you know, but he taught him to wrestle. And then he taught him to shoot, which is an even a step beyond what most wrestlers ever learn. He taught him how to hurt people if he really needed to. So promoters and owners had that type of background. They've got an appreciation for wrestling. Now, that's where you find uh, wrestling styles of, of workers in, in their territories to be true wrestling. There was guys like Leroy McGurk in Oklahoma, Vern Gagne in Minnesota, Eddie Graham for sure in Florida, Paul Jones in Georgia, an old-time Paul Jones, uh, the real old-timer from back in the 30s and 40s, big-time shooter, hook-scissor guy, uh, Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo, Paul Bosch in Houston. These are names of guys that had their own territories who learned to wrestle when they got in it, and they had appreciation for true wrestling. The owners of territories that didn't have that background, obviously a different style of match because they they didn't know much about that stuff. Eddie Farhat, like I mentioned, that's a perfect example of him. Uh, and in some ways, the McMahons in the Northeast, uh, they had the big guys that couldn't wrestle and they were slow in the ring and their matches were slow. The monsoons and the guys like that, that there was no action in their type of wrestling. It was not up to par with what was going on in the South. Jack Pfeffer and another guy out of New England, it was the same thing. He used a lot of goofball names, and he had wrestlers that didn't know how to wrestle. He was a long way from being successful. The yeah. third Lucha Libre style was maybe the only style that was forced upon promoters. You know, that style was forced. If, if you ran in L.A., there's two brothers that ran in L.A. for many years, Mike and Gene LaBelle. They liked wrestling. They had wrestlers, but they were forced to use a lot of Mexicans because the population in L.A. was hugely Mexican, and they wanted to see that type of wrestling. So in their case, they were almost forced by the fans to give them what they wanted to. So uh, Mr. McDaniel, uh, the promoter and owner of a territory, in my opinion, they decide the style of wrestling that their fans are going to get. I did, for sure, in Southeastern. I knew what I wanted to give fans. I knew which wrestlers could give me what I wanted them to give to the fans. And the fans, they could obviously make their own decision whether they wanted to come to your matches or not. I mean, if they didn't like your wrestling, they're going to quit coming. And then enough of your fans quit coming and they have no interest in the style of wrestling that you're offering, that promoter or that owner eventually is going to have to uh, probably sell. You know, he, he can't get a crowd there. So what's he going to do? He's going to sell his business. He, he might have to sell and he might have to move on. And it didn't make any difference. It didn't automatically mean that uh, the next time promoter came along was going to give the fans what they wanted. When I came to Knoxville, I really thought that, and I had a hard time in the first six months, in the first year, trying to change those fans there, uh, the blood and guts type fan. They didn't want to see Dale Lewis. They didn't want to see Danny Hodge. They didn't want to see wrestling. 
But I drove it down their throats until they started to realize that, hey, this is good stuff. Or maybe what happened is I might have lost a lot of those fans, but I was reducing and giving fans a much better product, and I got more people to replace the ones that left me. So I think that's maybe what happened. I don't know for sure if that's exactly what happened, but I know I was unhappy with the blood and gut style. I want. I brought Dale Lewis in, and I had him wrestle the marks out of the crowd and proved to people that wrestling was real. And it did a lot to change business, and something happened to make Southeastern pretty good territory. So as far as the fans were concerned, hopefully they get an owner that runs the, the wrestling company that they're, they're in that territory of that chooses his wrestlers wisely. Hopefully, he watches his wrestlers closely, not just in the ring, but outside the ring. What his wrestlers do out in the community and how they report themselves. And uh, that's important when you're the owner of a wrestling company. Hopefully, the wrestling promoter was putting a good product on the mat. And hopefully, he was making his best effort to provide fans what they deserve, what all fans deserve, the very best wrestling possible. That's what they deserve. And in my opinion... It's always the promoter and the owner's right to choose what style of wrestling he wants to promote. It's his right to. After all, he has the biggest stake in the success or failure of his company. <laughs> you know, nobody has a bigger stake in the, in the success of your wrestling company than you, the man that owns it. And so basically, if you own a company, you pick the style of wrestling that you're going to present to your fans. They don't like it. They'll leave. And if you're doing it right, you're going to gain a heck of a lot more fans by doing it properly. So you're, you're retraining fans. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically yeah. it. Rather than them retraining you, you retrain yeah. them. And that's basically what happened in Southeastern wrestling. It took about 18 months that I could start to see it happening. But yeah. I talked about today, those two back to back, uh, 45 minute and one hour matches, baby face matches with me and Dick Steinborn and how much that changed the, the perception of the sport. And that was important. Those type of matches is exactly what you had to give them. When you made those changes, did, did it kind of feel like turning an oil tanker? It's a, a very slow process, but you eventually you get that oil tanker turned all the way around in another direction. But so was it a slow process? Oh, yeah. You couldn't do so it overnight. It took 18 months. Like I yeah. said, I came there in uh, October of 74. We're in May of 76, and we're starting to turn the corner. We're about to get wow. that truck turned totally around. Got and it. once it's turned around, then there's no stopping that boy. And that's what happened with Southeastern. We're about to reach the point to where they couldn't go to the Coliseum. It was too big a building. They never had a match there. There said a 7,000-seat building that nobody ever saw wrestling in. And <laughs> now in 76, going to start January of 77, that's going to be the home of wrestling. And in order for that to happen, we had to turn the truck around. You're right. <laughs> well, there you go. Another one in the books. All you have to do is go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud Facebook page and like that page. You will automatically become a friend of a legend at Twitter. Find Ron at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 29, The Life of Jim Barnett, is the longest ever at more than four hours in length. What do you say about this? I mean, 
I guess you basically covered everything. Tell us a little bit about, uh, and some of the guests, you had Jim Cornette, you've got David Schultz, you've got Kevin Sullivan, you got Robert, Jimmy, Les Thatcher, Charlie Platt, Brian Last is on this one. This had to be one of the best ones you've ever done. Yeah, I, I really truly believe it is. And uh, it's an hour longer, uh, more than an hour longer, probably than anyone that we've done. But the subject matter of this one is just phenomenal. I mean, the Jim Barnett is just remarkable. Once and and I didn't even realize until I started really digging and doing this super stud cast how big he was. He's a pivotal character in all of wrestling and an amazing story, his life alone. And then when you start adding these guys like Cornette and Schultz and Sullivan and Rob and Jimmy and Thatcher uh, and getting their stories their memories of Jim Barnett, it makes this a pretty remarkable super stud cast. I think it may be one of the best I've ever done and uh, really, really proud of it. And then part two, uh, just now finishing it up, it's not going to be released until the 26th of May, but uh, it's the one with Cornette and Schultz and Kevin Sullivan and uh, wow. Charlie Platt. It's I mean, uh, both part one and two are just loaded, not just the history of Jim Barnett, which is a remarkable history. It's scandalous history, some of it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. got everything. It's the story that has everything, basically. I mean, it has everything. Stay tuned here to find out more about that. You can also find out more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. So what's up for next week? Well, we're arriving again at a critical time for Southeastern wrestling in the summer of 1976. We're going to be skinning the process of leaving Chilhowee Park forever and moving into the Knoxville Coliseum permanently. And we're going to start this process, oddly enough, with next Friday night's June 4th, 1976 card that will be one of the most historic and shocking nights for fans so far since I'd come to Knoxville. Uh, we're going to break down next week very important TV that promotes, obviously, this card of uh, June the 4th. And we're going to talk about some of the new names that are going to show up in the summer of 1976 that's going to just push Southeastern over the top. People that they've never seen before that are tremendous stars. Next week's Learning Tree is going to be another good one. Uh, the question there is, uh, what are some of the common reasons, good or bad, why a wrestler would put on a mask? I mean, it's a basic question, but uh, I'm sure fans uh, have been wondering that. Why do guys wear masks? I mean, where did it all start and what's it all about? But we're going to talk about that next week. Just want to thank everybody, Dave, uh, all my fans, all the patrons from around the world for the continued support. Everybody out there, take care of yourself and take care of somebody else, too, at the same time, if you can. And uh, God bless us all. All right. Great job, Stud. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is produced by the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.